0: But the basic assumption on our side is, of course, that technology transcends everything. You know, the the distinction between what is local and what is global makes no sense anymore. Some of the platforms have no respect for national borders.
1: The voice you heard was that of Kasper Klinger, the Danish technology ambassador and the world's first tech ambassador. And I'm Azim Azhar. You're listening to a special edition of the Exponential View podcast that's brought to you jointly with Casper. For thousands of years, technology developments have significantly impacted politics. Take the immense improvements in shipping technology and navigation during the 16th and 17th centuries and the advantage this gave to European nations, or the development of the telegraph in the 19th century, which reduced the communication delay across a continent from 10 days to less than an hour. Although powerful, these technologies were really merely viewed as tools, not as political agents. Well, this has changed with the internet. Many companies now have revenues that exceed the GDP of many nations. The largest internet platform, Facebook, has nearly twice as many users as China has people. In some cases, these companies hold the reins over the digital public sphere. So what are the implications of these changes? We're going to tackle these issues and many more in one of my very favourite conversations of the year. So before we get to that conversation with Casper, let me tell you about Exponential View. It's my way of explaining how the world is changing under the force of technology. The podcast, These Conversations with Some Brilliant Minds, is one avenue. The other is through my free newsletter, a wonder missive which lands in your inbox every Sunday. If you haven't subscribed, you can find it at www.exponentialview.co. Now I also have to ask you to take a moment to share this podcast with your friends or if your podcast platform allows ratings to spend 10 seconds to go off and give us a five-star rating. It's the best way to ensure that other listeners find the podcast. This is a unique podcast because in a sense we're both hosting it. Absolutely. This will be on my podcast season and it will be on your podcast season. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see how it, how it works on this rainy day in, in London. And in fact, uh, as we are talking over in Parliament, uh, there is this uh, multi-parliamentary committee asking questions of Facebook, which is, is, which is quite fascinating. And I guess Facebook is part of your patch.
0: Absolutely. It's one of the uh, partners that we're trying to have a closer relationship with and a closer dialogue with. So that's part of the, of the mandate of a tech ambassador, not to be an ambassador to a country or to an international organization, but in fact to, to be towards the industry, to Facebook, Google, Tencent, Alibaba of this world.
1: It's so interesting because we've seen for years these slides go out on uh, on conferences. People presenting uh, the world's biggest countries, and they put Facebook and Google and so on there, and they'd say, "Well, if Facebook was a country, it would be the third biggest in the world." Then it was the second, and now it's the first. and And so, what's the gestation of the the Tech Ambassador program? How did that uh, emerge within, I, I guess, the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs?
0: Yeah, I guess we are as close to becoming sort of a startup inside government uh, as you can be. This was uh, an innovation process that was initiated a couple of years ago in in the foreign ministry, where we put uh, a number of younger colleagues into a house and we locked the door and we said, come out with a number of recommendations on how we bring diplomacy or the foreign ministry into the 21st century. And I think they came out with 30 plus recommendations. And one of them was actually to create an ambassadorial post for technology and digitalization in recognition that, you know, that will be some of the drivers of change globally, locally, and uh, also, in fact, of uh, what you just mentioned, that some of the big technologies companies are in fact becoming very, very large and potentially also extremely influential over local matters, but also over international matters. So so that's the that's the background of it. And we've been up and running now for, for 12 months with a slightly different mandate than most of our colleagues because we have a global mandate and, in fact, also a global presence. So I spend most of the time in Silicon Valley. But part of my team is actually sitting in, in Copenhagen and also in Beijing, and we'll get some sort of presence in Nairobi and Kenya soon.
1: I'm guessing you're going to get to learn to love some airline lounges as well during this. <laughs> it's <laughs> during not, this it, process,
0: it's not a CO2 neutral initiative. Let me put it like that.
1: <laughs> no, uh, well, I hope I hope you're uh, you're neutralizing your flights uh, in some way. Um, I am quite curious about the, the process, right? So, when an ambassador shows up at a at a capital. He, he or she will go and present their credentials credentials so yeah. so what what happened with you when you turned up in the, the bay area?
0: yeah. I didn't bring a letter from the from Her Majesty the Queen of Denmark, uh, and so I haven't handed over my credentials to Zuckerberg or to Google or to Jack Ma or Alibaba. So in, in that sense, we are disrupting the traditional understanding of, of diplomacy. Uh, this is uh, an ambassadorial post to to an industry, but in fact also to you know all other countries around the world. Because what we're trying to do is actually to get other countries to do something along the lines of what we are, because we want to put technology more firmly in the international agenda. Mm. And I think. It'll be it'll be easy to convince you why that is necessary, but the basic assumption on our side is, of course, that technology transcends everything. You know, the the distinction between what is local and what is global makes no sense anymore. Some of the platforms have no respect for national borders. I think you mm. mentioned the the Facebook hearing in, in Parliament right now. That's a pretty good example that some of these companies are incredibly influential over over local mm. matters. So. So we haven't handed over any credentials, and we're trying to go native in, in how we dress and how we behave. But other other than that, is actually a very traditional uh, diplomatic uh, posting, a very traditional post for an ambassador.
1: Right. And what's happened in the and the other side is that the companies themselves have obviously beefed up their presence in terms of policy and and, and lobbying. Uh, I think you know in, in Brussels, there's just so many lobbyists from the the, 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 the large technology companies, and uh, you know, today in Parliament. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, was unable to uh, book a flight um, over to to London, uh, but they've sent um, Richard Allen, who's a vice president of Facebook, was previously the president of a sovereign nation, <laughs> which I, I think speaks to sort of how much power and influence these these large firms have have actually now now wield. Yeah, and I
0: think to be uh, to be fair to them, and I'd be you know intrigued to get your mm-hmm. view on that as well that they're only now beginning to realize and acknowledging that they are sitting on power bases with enormous influence. And, and to be fair to them, I know, I know there's a lot of tech lash and, and we certainly have our own criticism and concerns about how they act and how they behave. Um, in fact, one of the key uh, speaking notes uh, in, in my portfolio is to say we need them to take societal responsibility at a level which is proportional to the kind of influencing that they're exercising but to be fair to them i think i think even in the c suite level some of them are, are really struggling with the complexity of of what they've become mm-hmm. the power that they they uh, they have and how they actually exercise that both from a commercial point of view and also from a societal point of view and you know i think those are the battlegrounds that we will see in the coming years and and i think the companies will be judged on their ability to Take responsibility and to help protect some of the key values and in institutions that some of us think are, are quite interesting. But I mm. back to you. What, what, what's your sort of sense on where, well, where the well, C suite is going?
1: Yeah, you know, on this on this particular question, uh, we've already started to see points where. Um, let's talk about a positive example where these large technology companies are fulfilling the functions that we normally ask our nation state to fulfill for us. One of the basic ones is security. I mean, even libertarians can agree to that, that a nation state provides security. Uh, and when we look at cyber threats, these things now start to cross borders. You can. There was the famous one where there was the, the attack um, in the Ukraine. We can probably guess where it originated from, on a local Ukrainian bank. It spread across Microsoft uh, Windows services and brought down the great Danish company of Mesk, the shipping company globally, uh, created some really, really difficult um, issues for that particular firm. Now, when these sorts of attacks happen, however good your military is, you don't have the capabilities. You don't even have the control of the infrastructure or the patching and software update uh, systems to go in and and, and do the fix. And you're reliant on... uh, but on the one hand, the pri- uh, private companies, but on the other hand, particularly the very, very large right. technology companies the microsofts, the googles, the cloudflares uh, and so on to step up, notice the alert, stop it, isolate it, and then put out a, a patch that controls it. That is the sort of thing that fifty or one hundred years ago I as a citizen would have expected my nation state to to do uh, and and you talked about these these novel responsibilities that these companies have ended up earning as they 've got. Sort of bigger and, and more successful. Uh, this is this is one of those. And part of the challenges, you know, when I pay as I do eight euros a, a month for Microsoft Office Online, I'm getting that office piece of office software which Microsoft is now going to protect for me. But I, I don't have I don't have any governance control towards Microsoft. I don't get to vote with that. I don't get uh, a, a say. They don't really have account- accountability. So there's a there's a, a gap there which we need to figure out how to uh, a, a address, and it's not sort of the intentionality of these firms but by any means, it's where they've ended up, uh, but they have uh, got to figure out now, I think, and we have to figure out with them, how are we are going to draw those lines, how are we going to draw that accountability?
0: Absolutely, and I think one of the other reasons why that is the case is, of course, there's a much more blurred line between what is state actors and what is non-state actors, and how those two uh, actors are actually uh, sort of collaborating or, or being used by, by one another. And I think that actually puts cyber wars at a, at a different place compared to how traditional wars or conflicts are being uh, being uh, fought out uh, early on. But I think the response to that, at least from our point of view, is that you need to bring in the industry much closer to government. So we need to, to almost establish a new partnership where we work together, where we both try and fight and also attribute some of these uh, threats and, and the specific attacks and, and this is a very value-driven uh, dimension because, in, in fact, this is also about protecting democracy. It's about protecting the critical infrastructure of our nations. But you pointed out that one of our companies were extremely hard hit uh, last year with an Arpetya attack. It was sort of the the 911 moment of, of cyber attacks in Denmark, and it's one of the reasons why we, we uh, developed a new uh, national cyber strategy. I think to be a little bit self-critical, We're becoming better at doing the the defensive stuff, the national stuff. I think where we're struggling is to get the international collaboration going. How do we get the normative dimension going? And and just to underline your point, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we're now seeing Microsoft uh, basically driving uh, discussions Mm -hmm. on the potential for Geneva, a digital Geneva convention. They've come up with the tech accord, and I think they have now more than 60 companies that signed up to it. I think that also shows that some of the companies are becoming Foreign policy actors, or at least they are trying to influence uh, policies as well. We think we need an ambassador to that, not because we think that the companies are more important than than countries, but but in acknowledgement that it's a much more blurred picture, and we need actually to to reestablish some partnerships that we haven't had before.
1: We have, of course, had companies uh, act as foreign policy actors in the past. I mean, the the East India Company. Um, we in in out of uh, Great Britain, and we know how that ended up, and we know the sort of contributions and damages it, it created, and the use of privateers uh, back in in that time, and of course the the Dutch Indies Company, and which is one that I guess from your previous posting you, you you must know well. So so we what what I think is quite helpful in this in this process is that it's useful to have some historical precedent where we can say how did these things play out last time? What did we do well? What didn't we do well? And how do we now think about this uh, moving forward? think it's very hard to work out uh see a st- situation where you can unpick the global digital architecture that's that, that is being built from global companies and work out how they that maps back into the power base and the territorial definitions of a of a sovereign state uh I don't think it's impossible. I mean, we've got examples in the case of, um, uh, you know, obviously China is a strong example there, but it, I think even in a more subtle way, uh, what Germany has done for a very long time with respect to uh, particular classes of extreme right-wing speech and how they've insisted internet companies deal with that for German users, uh, demonstrate that it's it's possible. My reading of how states have... Uh, address that more broadly, and I can talk more about the UK, is that we've really we bought a little bit too readily into this vision, both of the internet being global and boundaryless, but also that uh, we should just allow the innovation because if we don't, it'll go Somewhere else.
0: I think one of the aspects which is uh, on top of the agenda right now is, of course, digital taxation. Mm -hmm. And um, the European Commission had a couple of proposals uh, put forward uh, some time ago. Uh, Unfortunately, that didn't find um, you know support among uh, EU member states. And nonetheless, if you look at the, at the statistics, the digital companies on average pays around half of what the traditional companies pays in the European Union. So those are no small matters. In, in the case of Denmark, of course, this is the question of whether we can finance our welfare system, our healthcare systems, our mm-hmm. educational system, etc. What we're finding is that it's always difficult to find the right model for, for regulating, including on taxation, uh, but we want to see the industry actually taking part of that responsibility on their shoulders, help us define how could a digital taxation look like, how do we put it together so it doesn't stifle innovation, it doesn't hurt us, it doesn't prevent us from, from building the new companies of, of the future. Um, but the question is, how, how, do we, how do we bring them into, into the, those discussions and how do we make sure that they also help us uh, define uh, the right way forward?
1: I think you're much closer to them than I am given the amount of time you you spend with them. Uh so so I'll give you a a slightly less informed view which is that I suspect they're very very far away from being able to think of the the benefits of taxation and social goods and and public goods. I think there are there's you know Milton Friedman uh the purpose of a corporation is to make profits. There's the front half of the famous Ronald Reagan quote Government isn't the solution; government is the problem, uh, and there is this the, the the libertarian streak that came out of the late '60s and early '70s uh, in Silicon Valley. All of which I think has impacted uh, how those firms think about this particular problem, um, and, and so I, I I suspect we need to think about both um, carrots, the sort of helpful hand, and quite Firmly wielded sticks uh, around these these companies uh, to help them think about what really is their contribution to the the, the, the well being um, and the purposeful direction of the countries in which they they operate. Uh, and I'm not sure it's going to be easy. Uh, I, I also am not sure whether the traditional mo- model of thinking about taxation will. Uh, necessarily work. I mean, I have some ideas that maybe are a little bit radical on that front.
0: Asim, can I I throw one of your earlier quotes uh, at you? Because I think think it's quite critical. You said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, that one of the largest risks is that we lose faith in the power of technology and its ability to raise uh, the human conditions and improve the state of humans. We need to recognize that innovation is successful for most of us if there is a high degree of trust in the system, hmm. now I think that's a fantastic quote, and it, it you know it's very close to to my own views on, on where technology is moving ahead. The problem is, of course, it doesn't require too many Cambridge Analytica's uh, to sort of jeopardize that trust in in society or on, on technology, etc. Um, I come from a country where we have a high degree of trust, both in governments but also in, in new technologies. But what we've seen with a couple of the um, hmm. of the scandals of the last uh, twelve months is that it's very easy to tilt that trust and the, and that balance right. how does that look from a uk perspective
1: well i think from the uk uh standpoint trust is significantly down in uh the technology platforms uh and uh it's interesting actually in in, in asia and china singapore trust is up over the last yeah. year in the uk and the us it's it's significantly down uh, the cambridge analytica uh stuff, the, the, the way that it connected somehow to the Brexit vote, which has been reasonably uh, fractious uh, in the UK, to say the least, uh, has also had people looking at these um, the, this, this issue of how we share data. And what I noticed from, not from research, but from talking to people in and around uh, my communities and people who I meet through my work, is that, they actually find it quite hard to draw a distinction between, say, the Facebook business model and its use of data and Google's business model and its use of data and Apple's business model and its use of data. Three very different companies. Apple barely uses consumer data uh, for its business and Facebook is dependent on it. Uh, and then the fact that you have a, as a mercurial and divisive character as Elon Musk uh, out there with his great supporters, but also riling people, also doesn't help. So I think we, we run a significant risk of turning against what I've sort of described as big T technology, which is what makes the headlines in the newspapers. And with that small T technology, which is about essentially how do we design things that have us a human purpose, that help fulfill a human purpose. Uh, and, and one of the methods we've used to do that is the method of science and testing and empirical validation. So it's a, the, the risk for me is a spillover from being really cross about Facebook, not, not being willing to listen to the, app, to the fact that Apple has a very distinctly different business model, so being cross with them, and then being cross with the whole endeavor that is ultimately connected with this humanistic process of the scientific method and, and small-t technology. And you know we, we've started to see... You know, measles and chickenpox outbreaks right across sort of Europe and the US as a sort of desire to doubt the process of science or the process of the technocrats uh, starts to, to bubble. And I think that's a really important risk for us because the biggest single challenge that we actually face, much as we maybe cross with you know, the use of our data or whoever's in running our country, uh, is about climate change. And that is going to be solved at some technical level, by technologies and research and these new things that we have yet to come up with.
0: If you if you sort of argue that one of the reasons why you see the rise of populism across the mm-hmm. world, basically, and one of the reasons why you have seen, you know, a vote on, on Brexit coming through is that people feel a little bit left alone outside mm-hmm. the systems. They mm-hmm. don't feel included. They feel perhaps their voices are not being heard can technology be a game changer for bringing people into the equation or do you think actually that technology might increase or be a catalyst for, um, let's say, having people inside and, and outside the, the mainstream?
1: Yeah, that is such a great, great question. And that comes down to how we choose to uh, design those those technologies and how we choose to apply them and the intentionality. Uh, there is a, a second great divergence that is going on. The first great divergence uh, happened at the... Uh, After the Industrial Revolution, where the countries who were able to uh, harness uh, the knowledge and the know-how that came out of that got very, very wealthy, and the other other countries known as the Global South nowadays didn't. Uh, There's The the second great divergence, I think, that is now happening is that technologies are accelerating at a very, very rapid rate, Um, and it's not just a single technology. It's it's gene editing, gene sequencing, it's lithium-ion batteries, it's the size of satellites, there used to be something that only a nation state could do. And just uh, <laughs> last week, um, a, a reader of my newsletter sent a handful of iPhone-sized satellites into space. Uh, and it can be done very cheaply now, but it's, of course, with processing power, um, accelerating it faster than traditional long, long-term Moore's law rates. And they're combining. So these exponentials, just to sound like a mathematician for a second, are getting... Or Silicon Valley. All <laughs> oh, right, combinatorial. In, in in their power. So they're racing away. Now, the social systems that we have don't move as quickly. Uh, they move quicker than they did, in a sense, because we can get ideas across them much faster because of the technology. But ultimately, they're baked in on human behaviors, on, on how we live our everyday lives, on the pace of a family, the pace of a city, the pace of a village. Uh, and so match ma- marrying that that mismatch that emerges will I think create more and more tensions between uh, the sort of technocrats and those who are ta- able to really take advantage of those systems mm. um, and and the rest uh, and mismatches in general in politics are a not thing. a great yeah. thing right yeah. pitchforks yeah. and guillotines often come out at that yeah. stage
0: yeah. yeah and and I agree with you on, on the risk of fragmentation also yeah. because of new technologies despite the fact that they will be. You know, fantastic uh, game changer also for bringing people out of poverty, uh, having better healthcare and education as well. Down winding streets, beyond the dreaming spires, inside the college walls, debates are happening. Future Makers, from the University of Oxford, invites you to that debate. Join me, philosopher Peter Milliken, and three experts as we discuss the movements that are shaping the future of our society. Our first series is all about artificial intelligence. And we'll be exploring topics from the future automation of jobs, to the inherent bias of algorithms, and even the impact AI may have on our health. That's Future Makers, available to download now. I actually recently just came back from a visit to India, my first visit in in, in this job to India, and it was uh, it was fascinating and very inspirational in many ways to see how technology is being utilised, also to connect people in the more rural areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably know this adha system, which right. is a social uh, security number system. Mm. And, uh, you know, to be very frank with you, preparing for for the visit, we we looked into it. And of course, a lot of discussions, is this the social credit system of India, like we see in China, was it something uh, different? Uh, my take from just spending a few days there is that it, it it from the outset, it is something different. It is actually about connecting people, giving them access that they haven't had before. So it could be, a democratization process uh, born by by technology. You can build upon that many, many other systems. But I also, frankly, frankly speaking, see a lot of potential for an increased digital divide. I think we see that nationally, even in a small place like Denmark, you have more rural areas that Mm -hmm. are going to be the last places to connect to 5G technology. So you won't have the benefits that you will have in, in the urban areas as well. And I think we have to pay attention to this because I think that fragmentation that could come from Rolling out these new fantastic technologies that you mentioned, um, we have to make sure that that is not unevenly distributed. That they don't see sort of a, a digital poorness or uh, poverty coming out of it, because I think the, the politics of that could be uh, could be dangerous both locally but also internationally. And again, I represent a foreign ministry, so of course we're also looking at that at a global level. You know what will happen in Africa, what will happen in, in Asia. And perhaps just to hmm. to throw another question at you, Asim. We talked a little bit about the fragmentation, but if we bring in the future of the labor market, Mm. uh, automation, um, I'm spending a lot of time reading what much more smart people than myself are thinking about it. And what I see is that there is no mainstream view on are we going to see sort of an equilibrium, a um, state of play with the number of jobs that we have, are we going to see them increase or or being reduced? On a personal level, and I don't speak on behalf Mm. of the Danish government on that, I have a sense that it might be difficult for us to maintain uh, the same number of jobs because of AI, because of automation. Uh, looking a little bit ahead, um, so the 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 perspective sort of a new f- new feudal system almost, where very few have everything, and the rest of us uh, need to find something else to do, is certainly out there. What what's your view on the future yeah. of the labor market?
1: Well, you said the new feudal system. There's a great short story uh, by the Chinese uh, science fiction writer Liu Cixin, uh, and which is called "The Last Capitalist," uh, or and it, in this story, essentially, they have a contractarian society and it's one where everything is managed by sort of contracts and obligations. And so somebody does a little bit better one generation uh, or a group does, and they have a little bit more than the rest and the others, the rest become serfs. So the next generation, the group with the power gets smaller but more powerful and more serfs until at the very, very final iteration, there's one person with all the power And everyone else is living on the the feudal the feudal land. I think what he identified in that uh, in that particular short story was this idea that that there is a risk um, of heading in that direction. And we have the indicators when we we think about um, how does value get shared across a network like Uber? Uh, The drivers get very little compared to the shareholders, and relative to the, for sake of argument, hours worked by the Top executives and the, um, and the founders. W- when I look at the the automation question, like you, I'm a bit uh, confused about what I what I read. Yeah. Um, there's a few things that I am s- for, sort of fairly certain on. Number one, it's going to vary from country to country depending on the industrial structure, their current level of roboticization, the relative cost of labour, and the complexity of what they're doing. Skills and competences. And skills competences. Mm-hmm. Demographics. Yep. Uh, what we're seeing is, for example, um, in a number of countries like you know the US or the UK, there, there's very very high levels of employment right now. So arguably, you could absorb more robots and wouldn't make that much difference. Um, the, the the second thing that I'm reasonably certain of is that this technology will be able to be deployed uh, both in in sort of white collar environments where where people are often in very routinized jobs and in uh, non-white-collar environments much more quickly than previous types of technology because we've spent the last 30 years defining processes very cleanly, digitizing our businesses. These things are ready to be plugged in and plugged out. Uh, that that does then lend, lend itself to a situation where there will be a lot of change for many, many people. Even if, the in aggregate, we create more jobs, mm. many tens of millions, potentially hundreds of millions of people, will have their jobs change around them, possibly not by choice. And we have to be very clear that that level of change being being forced onto people by forces greater than themselves can create a sort of sense of helplessness and frustration and and sort of negative psychological impact. So I'm reasonably certain that 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 is the case, and we have to think about what sort of policies and systems we need to build in order to manage that in a sort of human way that looks after people's well-being and the well-beings of our society in a sustainable uh, fashion. So I'm quite far away from there will be no jobs. Mm -hmm. I think that it's possible to imagine a future where People don't feel unemployed, and still are able to maintain a good quality of life because I think lots of new classes of jobs will emerge, as have emerged in generations, uh, for pre- pre- previously.
0: But but if that if that is the case, and I'm, I'm not hearing you say that you're convinced it'll be a zero sum game, that might be some job losses uh, mm-hmm. along the way. Yeah. Uh, but that requires that we hit the Control-Alt-Delete button in, inside our mindsets because it's a different kind of identity that most of us will have to get used to where the jobs are no longer everything we we identify with. It'll, it's a different kind of future. But I assume if you look at it from a political economy point mm-hmm. of view, it also requires uh, all governments, all decision makers to take a much more strategic view on it. And if I go back to to my previous posting in Indonesia and in Jakarta, mm-hmm. uh, you know that's a country that hope to benefit tremendously from the raise of, uh, of labor costs in China. They hope to attract a lot of, of the jobs in, uh, in the heavy industries, uh, in car industries, etc. The problem is, of course, that those are probably the jobs that are going to disappear, disappear uh, first. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, uh, the, the prognosis of their economy might be very difficult to, uh, to, to, see, uh, to see actually in, in reality because of the changes to, to the labor market. So it requires a strategic approach from from countries, and it requires a degree of preparedness. That is not necessarily the case uh, if you if you look globally at it. Um, how how do we help prepare decision makers for for this future, despite the fact that it's extremely difficult to predict whether it'll be positive, negative, or status quo?
1: You've really thrown a super tough question at me. I, I, I have it?
0: many more my paper. Yeah, that's, that, that's why well, we're here to get I, all the silver uh, bullets out of you today. I yeah, yeah. Well, no, <laughs> I know absolutely.
1: So, so I. I we used to have a roadmap for uh, the you know emerging economies, which was you can very quickly go out and build your industrial capacity and your infrastructure, and uh, because of your labor costs, you would be able to uh, sort of take business and, and compete uh, in in different ways. And that that model seems to have uh, weakened a little bit because of uh, you know approaches towards tariffs and and, and, and so on, and now roboticization. Mm. Uh, one thing that I would say about roboticization is there are very few industrial robots uh, on the planet right now uh, and, and so and that they can't do that that much and we're a while away from them really being capable and cost effective to replace human work. I think from a state perspective, uh, what you clearly need to do is be engaged in the discussion with the entrepreneurs in your own country. Uh, you need to be learning about uh, what an entrepreneurial ecosystem starts to look like. You need to use your power uh, as a state to convene people. You may not be able to do much more than say, let's use the presidential palace for a meeting. It's an incredibly motivating force. I mean, in the UK, uh, we, uh, few, for the last several years, technology entrepreneurs have been wandering in and out of number 10 Downing, Downing Street for almost any reason, because you know what's really cool to go there?
0: We met at the Lisbon Web Summit a few weeks ago, yeah. and and you just put out your your podcast with uh, Reed Hoffman. and We were mm-hmm. talking a little bit about this blitz scaling, right? And I was um, cheeky enough to say that I thought it was a fantastic podcast, and you you, you really had an interesting discussion, but. I had hoped that you would have been a little bit tougher on. So the question of whether blitz scaling is good not only for the individual company but also from a societal point of view, from a from an overall point of view. And it reminded me actually. I, I took this uh, week course at Stanford uh, this summer um, to put something on my CV so I can claim that I have technology insights which I didn't have before. Um, but but the professors during that that we continuously talked about how do you make sure you innovate inside your company, how to make sure you fight competition, you. Make sure you remain uh, at top of, uh, of your game. And at the end of the week, I, I sort of we're left with this uh, question. Are, are we sure that's what's good for society is that you retain old companies just for the sake of retaining old companies? That there isn't a sort of a natural balance where new innovation comes and old companies uh, die away? Um, and, and I think it's a little bit the same question that I had with with your podcast. Um, innovation is fantastic. We have a lot to learn from innovation, especially when you come from a government but sometimes innovation environments and and epicenters perhaps also need to take a broader look on what's good for societies and how to make sure that it fits into the values that we fought for literally hundreds of years to to create. How do you see that discussion taking place inside the you know the technology companies or the innovation wow. centers?
1: We should look at where uh, where we are with uh, innovation. Um, so two little historical. Uh, observations, you know, innovation and the idea of protecting innovation and using it as an advantage, uh, really came, I mean, obviously there'd been secrets, you know, the secret of my civilization, but the, the Venetian glassblowers were the first ones to really get patents because what they did was very hard and it was sought after and they wanted it protected. And then in, in England, we had patents Royal and the statute of Anne, which started to introduce copyright at a point where not many people were innovating. And it was a little bit of a rarity. Mm. Uh, and, and so you get to a point today where lots of people innovate. It's actually systematized. You know, we, we have spontaneous uh, ideation that happens in companies all over the world. And, and so the question is, do we have a dearth of innovation that now needs to have this government state-enforced monopoly called the patent over the, over the, the top, or is it just an everyday thing? Mm. When I look at back to the development of uh, the English economy and then the British economy uh, around the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that you see is that we were not as aggressive in protecting intellectual property. And so the softness of IPR protections allowed a leakage and a sharing of ideas that is quite closely tied to one of the reasons why Britain did so very well in the late 17th and early 18th century and then the 19th century. So when we... Look at this question of, of of innovation. There's an assumption that that more is always better, that faster is always better, that if we don't treat you really well, you won't otherwise do it, uh, and so there's a risk that we won't get any. and And I think you only have to walk into uh, any kitchen in any part of the world and see some innovation, whether it's the way in which the dishcloth is. Handled near the stove to dry it, or the way in which the knife is 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 held. I mean, innovation is a very very natural uh, tool. It's a tool that people uh, I- enjoy. Uh, it, it's of self serving interest to create it as a thing in itself that then needs you know, protection uh, and reward in this particular way. From a from a historical perspective, I think the open source movement uh, is. Extremely powerful in reminding us that there are other reasons why people innovate and innovation mm. can come from that. And we're starting to see open source movements uh, emerge and build. Um, they're building a new type of commons mm. that is a digital commons. Uh, and uh, yeah, the digital commons becomes a shared resource that we can all benefit from if it's stewarded properly. Now, that is one way of saying that while the lawyers will fight to protect the, the intellectual property, while the, the, the venture capitalists will uh, de- demand super returns, superior returns from uh, sort of brilliant young minds, uh, we are going to benefit from having a much wider, softer view of what innovation is and how it should emerge. And I suspect that the, the pendulum will swing towards a more collectivist Approach. Now I've got no evidence. I can't. But I. But I will say. I think we'll look back in a few years and say actually that pendulum has swung and Mm. we are sharing. We are thinking in terms of commons much more than we say perhaps did in the late nineties.
0: So this will be a parenthesis in history. In other words.
1: Well, I I think it'll just be a moment where where things were. You used the word equilibrium earlier, right? They 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 got out of balance. They'll re-equilibrate. It'll probably swing the other way. Uh, We'll find we'll find that we actually do have to tighten tighten various. Um, laws in you know twenty five or thirty years time, but but that said, it's not all about the software companies. I mean, just this week mm. uh, we read that the first CRISPR edited twins were born in in China, uh, and so there are also cases where we need to think about how should we control and maintain uh, rules around particular uh, technologies. And I think that's in a sense at the heart of this the the the, the discussion, which is this this process is so powerful that if it goes on in an unguided way the outcomes are are very very hard to hard to predict and and who could have predicted that uh, the application of black scholes option theory that resulted in securitization of all sorts of financial instruments would have turned into uh, a bubble and a burst in the global financial crisis that created the schisms and the fractures that you yeah. alluded to a few minutes ago. Yeah.
0: And I think that's a, such an important point. Yeah. And um, I'm sure it's only in Denmark that this happens, but uh, when we have uh, visitors coming into Silicon Valley, most of them are saying, you know, how, how can we replicate Silicon Valley in, in Denmark or in Europe? Um, and, um, you know, I'd be interested in, in, in having your views on, on two separate questions. One is where do you see the big innovation centers or epicenters uh, turning up in, in the world? Um, One of the reasons I'm asking this question is what I've noticed just in 12 months Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley is that innovation sometimes happens through mergers and acquisitions. Um, The big companies are becoming so big that they basically buy themselves into new innovations. Mm -hmm. They scoop up everything that is happening in in Europe and and you see more and more people uh, roaming the streets of Palo Alto or Mountain View or or Mendo Park. Um, So the question is, is this sort of almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that Silicon Valley has become so powerful that... We haven't seen the last of Silicon Valley. In fact, they have the potential to continue to be a very important hub simply because of the volume and, and the potential to buy up new innovations around the world. And the second one is, of course, you know, when you look at Europe, um, things are happening in Scandinavia at a smaller scale. I think Paris is certainly one of the bigger uh, innovation centers, and, of course, London.
1: Uh, you've gone to China a number of times. So what do you see and observe and feel mm. when you get out of the airports? In Beijing or Shanghai
0: or Shenzhen or Shenzhen, yeah. Well, well, I think I think what I see and what I feel is, of course, that uh, you know, massive change is on the way because of new technologies and the data application uh, in it. But on the global scale, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we are seeing a shift from the west towards the east, and that China is becoming, if not one of the most important, perhaps the most important center of innovation and and the application of new technologies. And it goes without saying that machine learning and it, artificial intelligence is probably uh, the new technology where China has so many obvious advantages with the accessibility to data that is not necessarily, necessarily GDPR protected as we know it in Europe, and that just helps build those machines and, and get those machines to to perform uh, at a pace which is going to be difficult for us in Europe or even in the US to keep pace with. So I think I think we need to pay attention to China. Um, and it's, it's impossible not to be fascinated or impressed with what is happening and the scale of, of innovation. And, and again, as I said before, the applicability of technologies in China, it's, it's mind-blowing in many ways. But of course, there's a flip side of the coin, which is, you know, is that necessarily the way forward that we think is the right way? I think in some ways it is, but in other areas, there are values, there are fundamental rights, there is, you know, overall societal uh, approach to technologies, which I think is questionable. And, um, you know, the deduction for me in all of that is that we might be critical on what some of the big technology companies of the U.S. is doing these days, and, and rightly so, I have to say, and also having dealt with them for more than 12 months. It's not always been a sweet ride with, uh, with a lot of nice talks. It's been difficult and very tough from time to times. And on the other hand, you see a lot of sort of Europe lash happening in, in the U.S. Uh, we, they don't particularly enjoy GDPR. They think that we over etc. et cetera. But at the end of the day, we're part of the same heritage, we adhere to some of the same values. And I think we have to pay attention to that, not least here in in the end of 2018, approaching 2019, because I think the big battle will be the overall approach to to technologies and being better at building the next generation of AI machines uh, might be impressive and fantastic also from an economic point of view but it's not necessarily the right way forward. And I think we have to to be aware that uh, both at national level, but also internationally. Because I, th- I think one thing that I, I use all the time is where did venture capital investments in AI go last year, mm-hmm. 2017? And it was probably the first year where we saw that uh, the majority actually went into China. Mm-hmm. 48% of mm-hmm. all global venture capital in AI systems went to China, 38% to, to the U.S., and uh, you know, fourteen for the rest of the uh, of the world. That includes Europe, by the way. I think that's a very concrete example of uh, the changing contours of, uh, of of at the global level of where technology is heading.
1: China has got a, a bunch of advantages that you you discussed and described, and I think the state private sector fusion as well that also emerges yeah. is another part. It was almost inevitable, uh, in a sense, because historically China has been a much larger part of the global GDP. Uh, it was just that last couple of hundred years where we had the divergence where this this changed. So we we, we had to be uh, prepared for it. Uh, outside of the three Chinese cities you described, I mean, I think we are seeing more ecosystems uh, emerge. They take a long time uh, to emerge, mm. uh, and one of the difficulties is that as soon as you get something promising, there's lots of reasons why an Apple or a Samsung or a, then an Ameri- another American firm will come in and acquire them. And so in the UK, we have in you know, Cambridge uh, almost a revolving uh, cycle of companies being built and then bought by particularly Apple, but also some of the other Microsofts and so on. And um, and then their, their executives leaving and starting an, an, a, another one. And I think there's a challenge there about, are you really now just low-cost, nourishing innovation for, a, for, another, for another country. But innovation happens in cities rather than in, in countries. I think that's really important. And that b- helps us think about the Brexit question because the innovation economy in the, in the UK is really driven by a couple of hubs. It's mostly in the sort of London Triangle. And if you think about Silicon Valley, the distance from you know, the Marin headland all the way down to San Jose, yeah. is far bigger than the triangle that is London, Oxford, Cambridge. Uh, so you could sort of, in with, a sense... With
0: traffic, it's about the same, though, no?
1: <laughs> yeah, with traffic, <laughs> it's about the same. Uh, and, and so so if you look at that, that hub, you'll, you'll see that cities, that's a, that's a, a, a city-scale ecosystem, uh, which is almost independent of what happens nationally. And cities are incredibly resilient things. I mean, no. they survive everything. They survive earthquakes, they survive nuclear weapons, in the case of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and they often survive longer than nation states do. So there are reasons to believe that the things that uh, in general have made London attractive to be in, uh, which is not the house prices, and it's not the, the dirt and the, the level of crime, it's the intermixing, the conversations, the dynamism will, will continue to be uh, a, a, attractive in an even in a most Brexit scenarios. I mean, if we don't can't get flights in and there's no clean water, there's no medicine or food, uh, London will look sort of relatively less attractive. I'm, I'm sure. Um, and, and and as the, the the center starts to shift uh, away from uh, the 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 Bay Area, London's actually in quite a nice spot. I mean, if you want to go from San Francisco to Beijing, why not? But the same dynamic that makes London attractive uh, also means that Silicon Valley will maintain its attractiveness mm. uh, because there are lots of smart people thinking in, in, in different ways. That said, the monoculture in Silicon Valley uh, that, it, that exists might be enough to frustrate people. And one could imagine that monoculture getting too extreme. Uh, and so naturally have people saying, you know what, I'd rather be closer to my mom and dad and and do this and you know what Berlin is pretty vibrant or Lisbon is pretty vibrant I think this will be okay and and it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out and in particular is, uh I don't think Silicon Valley in of itself has a way of being purpose-driven the way that the mayor of London or the mayor of LA or the mayor of Copenhagen could be purpose-driven in trying to shape the city in a particular way.
0: When you look at, at technology um, here in, in 2018, what makes you concerned about the, the next couple of years and what makes you optimistic about the next couple of years?
1: Well, I, I'm quite concerned with the risks of a tech clash mm-hmm. hurting our ability to accept novel yeah. AI diagnostics or MRI machines. Uh, that's definitely something that we need to to think about. Two years for me, though, in general is too short a time. It's the it's the time frame of unexpected shocks like a cyber attack or a disinformation campaign. Uh, I think longer term I'm concerned in in this order with our ability to satisfactorily deal with uh, climate change, uh, and then secondarily our ability to maintain, increase the amount of trust and mutual respect within our societies, the flip side of which is the, the growing inequality. That level of trust and mutual respect is a critical part to us being able to get together and solve problems collectively and not split and, and, and splinter. Uh, and and you know, I think technologies can play a very strong part in that as they have historically. Yeah. And how about you, as you look out over the next uh, two years or, or longer, what are you optimistic about in technology and what are you nervous about?
0: Well, I think I think if we if sort of divide it in the short term, medium term, and long term, I think short term, um, personally, I'm I'm concerned about the cyber attacks that we're seeing, and of course the role of, of Russia and uh, and the non-state actors and and the damage they can do from a purely destructive point of view. I think luckily we haven't seen any uh, you know catastrophic incidents coming out of cyber attacks. It's been extremely damaging for companies. You know, I was ambassador to Indonesia when the NotPetya attack happened last year, and we had to help. You know, MERS client, they had no idea what was inside the containers. We had to get special permissions for them to unload, uh, uh, et cetera. So very damaging. But we haven't seen, I think, something very dramatic. We haven't had a Titanic moment, uh, basically, mm. on cybertech. Like so a, a on,
1: plane falling out of the sky or something Something like that,
0: I thought, yeah. or, the, or the national health uh, system uh, basically yeah. crashing, uh, right. operations going, going bad. So I think short term, that's something that we need to really uh, pay attention to and, and fix and, and really work together also internationally about. Medium-term, I think the role of the big technology companies, I'm not, not talking only about the Americans here, but globally, I think they have to get it right. And I think that requires a change of mindset in the C-suite, where it's not only about being a good programmer, a good coder, it's not only about being a good engineer, it's also about making sure that those companies adhere to the higher standards, um, not only in how they promote their commercial activities, but also how they play into societies and into, into the international systems. And I'm concerned uh, again on a personal level uh, on the impact of some of these new technologies in the companies on global governance on the institutions that we that we uh, have uh, developed over the last couple of centuries. So I think medium term, it's going to be incredibly important that we see responsible leadership uh, turning up in in all the big companies. I think we're seeing that in a number of them. Uh, we're seeing you know the jury's still out on on a couple, and then there are a couple of them. Um, that, frankly speaking, are, are acting in a way which is uh, is problematic. In my view, also extremely problematic from a commercial point of view. Further down the line, I think we'll see a convergence between the public view on the companies and the government's view on on, on the companies. And at the end of the day, that will jeopardize their uh, activities and and the potential for for delivering to their stock uh, owners, etc. Long term, I've already alluded to that. Um, I think I think there is a basic question on where the world is heading and what systems will prevail, uh, what values will prevail. Um, you know, we are seeing the shift from, from the West to the East. It's, as I said before, very easy to be fascinated by it. But I think it also raises some fundamental issues about, you know, what kind of world we're building, uh, who, will, who will define uh, the directions and the trajectories of, of that world, and I think there will be some real discussions on on the values. And again, the institutional setup on that. So what I'm trying to say is long term, um, there is a question of, of East versus the West. Mm. And then, of course, how do we make sure the, I think you referred to the global South or, mm. or the developing economies, that they don't trail far behind, that right. they also get the benefits and reap the benefits of new technologies, IoT systems, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's sort of my uh, my concern list. But, but I had to, to sort of add to that list that we should never forget that technologies, and I live and see it on a, on a daily basis, that the p- potential of the new technologies is incredible. You know, mm-hmm. you go to a company, they do retina scanning, they'll be able to diagnose uh, you with, with diabetes, give you better treatment than we've ever seen before, long distance uh, surgical uh, procedures, uh, better education to people that are in rural areas. It's going to be a game change in so many positive ways and we should never forget to focus on, on those potentials. But I think realism is not a bad thing, not least when you're a diplomat. So so never forgetting to also focus on, on the concerns or the challenging areas is something that, that we'll continue to advocate.
1: Yeah, I, I'm curious about this this idea of the center of gravity moving towards the the East. Yes. And we tend to focus on... The rising power who's getting more power, but I think there are also risks that emerge when you ask the question and who has power now and is losing it yes uh, and when we look at that picture, I think we can see that you know post the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, there is still some ramifications uh there's a, you know an angry bear <laughs> in a sense uh, and and it's not just the, at a nation national level, it'll be at a company level. I think some of the reasons that we see such aggression, uh, and, and stonewalling from Facebook is a sense that, that people are trying to diminish its power. Yeah. Uh, and it may even happen within societies because at some point, if we're going to equalize and redistribute, uh, that has to come from someone's take, even when the pie is growing, it needs to come from someone's take. Uh, so, when you think about this overall shift in in technology, how do you think we should think about the nations or the companies that have power now who need to adjust the way that they they operate? Um,
0: I'd be a little bit selfish in, in reply to this question, because I think what we're trying to do, and and again. We're a very small country. We won't be able to fix it. We need to bandwagon with a lot of other countries to get this right. But I think what we're trying to do at a small scale is to raise the stakes uh, vis-a-vis the companies. And, you know, one of the criticisms that I absolutely despises that comes in our direction is that we are now, we're now sugarcoating uh, the big technology companies. We're helping them. We're basically there to... To make nice to to the companies, and you know, my reply to that is always, I wish you could sit into some of the conversation I'm having. Now, that's the nature of diplomacy that doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't work. <laughs> right. But 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 people would realize that these are not necessarily pleasant discussions, and we're bringing real topics to the to to the headquarters in in Silicon Valley or in Guangzhou or or in, in Frankfurt or elsewhere. Right. And and just to give you a couple of examples, of what it is that we're discussing, you know, this is about. Uh, police investigators' access to, to information on, on on real investigations. It's about how to avoid uh, meddling with the election processes being at the national level or the European level. It's about making sure that, you know, when 42,000 Danes had their data breached at the Cambridge Analytica scandal, you know, what are they doing about that? How is that data being treated? Those are not small issues. Right. Those, in my view, are fundamental issues. They're very big issues. They have a an impact on you and me, but mm. they also have an impact on the international system and 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 where the world is basically heading. So, so I think raising the stakes and making sure that you almost sort of have a have a pit bull function in 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 making sure that if the companies, uh, you know, make the wrong choices and go down the wrong way, then we're here to to point that out. We're here to bring views uh, from the danish government in our case uh, to the headquarters and say well that's not exactly how we think you should play ball Uh, on the other hand we love the sharing economy we love the platform so let's actually you know reinvent the relationship between the private sector and the public sector let's work together let's us help you know you define your own policies so that you don't uh, continuously uh, get in in trouble uh, because of of a mismatch between policies and, and practice. So, so I think, I think, you know, it's a realistic approach, but it's also sort of a, uh, a, a process where there is a value proposition also to the big companies. We're not, we're not there to to jeopardize the, their commercial opportunities or to bring the big regulatory stick. In fact, we're there to recognize that governments always have difficulties getting it right on the regulatory front and we need each other in, in this uh, conversation. What I would hope is that, you know, the, uh, the leadership of some of the big technology companies will also increasingly see the benefit and added value of working together with governments. And I think we're not quite there yet.
1: You're not, but what you are doing is is building a new set of institutional relationships, so a class that didn't exist previously. And I think with every iteration of technologies, you get new forms of relationships or political institutions or modes of governance that, that emerge. I mean, democracy wouldn't have made sense 700 or 800 years ago. People were not well enough educated. We didn't have the communication systems and so yeah. on. So as you look out uh, the next 10 or 20 years w- and look at the existing political institutions we have and sets of relationships, whether they're multilateral or, or not, and, and and tools for governance, what which of those do you think can... Uh, survive as they are, which can survive with changes, what won't survive, and what new things could emerge to take their place?
0: So this is the easy question towards the end. This is payback for some of the questions I asked you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think if I begin with, with some of the concerns, I've, you know, I don't know the numbers for the UK, but I think on, on a European level, what is quite disturbing is that when you ask the younger generation, the millennials, about, you know, how important is democracy, how important is the government structures, etc., that's actually declining on average. Mm-hmm. So, so for those of us who grew up in the Cold War and still remember, right. now, when I did my military service, uh, all the exercise plans was always, you know, the, the Warsaw Pact is now invading Denmark, and how do we respond to that?
1: Jakob <laughs> Ruparuski. Because at similar age to you, yeah. Russian was a course offered at school because it might be useful Absolutely. in case of emergency.
0: And, and you know, I'm going to sound very old <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, but I, but I think, you know, that history legacy or having lived through the 70s or 80s and having experienced the, the fall of the Berlin Wall is not necessarily the case for my children. and And I see that on a daily basis. So I think... We're going to have a big uh, struggle and a very important struggle to make sure that we continue to explain why democracy is the best uh, way forward, why we have to protect the institutions and why the private sector is part of that equation and also have a common responsibility in, in, in that sense. I think governance is changing and, and will change. Um, and I think that will require a... a you know, a number of years before we get our systems in place. You know, agile governance, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, is of you go, course.
1: D- Denmark's doing some fascinating work on agile governance, I think I've, I actually read a blog post oh, uh, on one of the government pages about this. Yeah, fantastic. Which I will yeah. uh, tell people Google agile governance in Denmark, and <laughs> five criteria for it, and so on. It's very no, interesting. No, but, but you
0: know, but we were trying, and and uh, you know, we we of course love to brag about the fact that we're number one on this. They see. Uh, European um, index on, on digitalization and, and on the UN side as well but I think if you ask our political decision makers back home we acknowledge that even for hyper digitalized country like Denmark we're going to be challenged in in the fourth industrial Revolution you know future of the labor market how we how we govern how institutions will be. so I think we're standing in front of a very fascinating uh, decade where new technologies might change everything. Uh, but I think we're also standing in front of a decade where we will have to take some um, some very conscious discussions on how we protect the institutions that we think are important. And I think that applies locally. Uh, mm-hmm. It applies regionally in Europe, but it certainly also applies on a, on a global scale, um, which is one of the reasons why I think you probably know the the UN Secretary General set down this uh, high- level panel on digital cooperation. Um, I think that's important no matter what comes out of it because it's about, you know, acknowledging, that technology is going to, uh, you know, transcend everything we do, including for the UN, and and getting some thoughts into um, how we get it right. Uh, so I, I think I'm I'm optimistic, positive, but I'm also realistic in the sense that I think we are we're standing in front of some some pretty important uh, pieces of, uh, of
1: decisions. I very rarely feel jealous about the work that somebody else is doing. I feel very lucky in in what I get to do. But I think you have a really fascinating brief, uh, I, and I'm hoping that other foreign ministries will see the benefit of having ambassadors who are working with these supranational technology companies uh it's been fantastic to chat to you today really enjoyed it we're going to have to do it do it again uh and of course uh I should really have brought you some ferrero rocher which is <laughs> what all ambassadors uh Deserve when of they course. come to London. Of course,
0: yes. I think it's been a, and it's been a pleasure. I've been a big fan of your podcast and the exponential view for a long time. So, so having the opportunity to discuss some of these big issues with you is always a pleasure. So let's let's continue those discussions. I'm not sure we'll find the silver bullet in the next couple of months. We'll probably no. be there next year as well.
1: No. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Azeem here. I'll be back next week with another great conversation. And remember, it really helps (laughs) us reach new audiences and continue to improve the quality of debate around technology if more people are listening. So please take a moment to share this and recommend it to your friends. Thank you.